So one thing that I am deeply convinced of, deeply, deeply convinced of, is that all of us, every single one, no matter who we are, no matter what our story is, no matter where we're coming from today, no matter where our headspace is at, no matter what class we just came out of, I am deeply convinced that all of us need more silence in our lives. I'm convinced that all of us need more quiet in our lives. I mean, isn't there just so much noise today? Like, in, I mean that in a really robust, full way. Not, I mean, sometimes there is. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a seven-month-old. Sometimes there's literal, like, noise. Like, you know what I mean? But there's also just a lot of noise in more of a metaphorical sense today. And we just don't take enough time to be silent. And it's hard, right? I mean, one of the messages I preached last year in chapel, you may remember, you were either here, or maybe you caught it on video. If you're a new student, you didn't have a chance. But I preached an entire message on being scared of silence out of 1 Kings uh, 18 and 19. So I get it, but I also, I, we need this. Um, and so we're going to practice it together, a full literal minute, 60 seconds of silence. And I actually, uh, I prayed that you would forget your AirPods in your room. <laughs> That's a little funny. Come on, that deserved more of a, if you didn't, thank you so much. If you if you didn't forget them and you have them in right now, I'm not going to like rail on you about this all year, but occasionally I'll mention it. And it's not anything that I have to offer, but I, I think I'm right when I say that no matter who you are, you need more silence. So if you've already checked out, just humor me for a second. Take out your, iPod, uh, your AirPods and let's practice 60 seconds of silence. One of the passages that I come to regularly when I need to be reminded of the importance of silence is in Psalm 37. It's verses 5 through 7. And this is the message paraphrase of those verses. Open up before God. Keep nothing back. He's going to do whatever needs to be done. He's going to validate your life in the clear light of day and he will stamp you with approval at high noon, I love that. Quiet down before God. Be prayerful before him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you that it's okay to be silent. Thank you that you speak to us in those moments, in those ways, even when it's hard and difficult. May we respond to the psalmist's call for us to be quiet before you and to be prayerful before you. May we trust you to do what needs to be done. And Father, as we transition to looking here at another psalm this morning, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would decrease, and that you would increase. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I'm curious, uh, do any of you know the origins of this phrase, I'm shook? Raise, show your, raise your hand, I won't call on you, but if you think you know the origins of this phrase, go ahead and raise it, if you think you know where it came from. Okay, so I'm sure that many of you, like me, are familiar with this phrase. Raise your hand if this isn't the first time you've heard this phrase. Okay, more hands. But like you would have, I had to look it up. Like, where did this phrase originate? And it's always hard to nail down where slang like this comes from, but I found a few different sources that point to 1990s hip-hop as one of the places that this phrase may have originated. In fact, there is a rap hip-hop duo 
named uh, Mob Deep. Anybody Mob Deep fans in the room? Okay. And they had a 1995 album that was titled, these guys, actually one of them has passed away, which is sad, but um, they had a 95 album that was titled Shook Ones, part two. Shook Ones, part two. I don't know, I don't know what part one was named. Maybe it was also called Shook Ones. More recently, though, in rap and hip-hop, this phrase has been used in songs, lyrics by Tupac, Nicki Minaj, Jay-Z, and Lil Wayne. And you didn't think you were going to get a Lil Wayne lyric um, in the first chapel of the year, but here it is, because I think that it really actually sums up the original intent and meaning of this phrase. And if he ain't shook, I'm going to shake him. And if he ain't shook, I'm going to shake him. And right, this is You understand what he means by this, right? Like you get the original meaning of this phrase. It's the idea of being fearful. It's the idea of being scared, of being worried because someone is intimidating or coming after someone else. So this is like, you know, 1990s up through probably like 2015, 2016. I think this was the original meaning of the phrase. Now it's far more used in an ironic sense, or it's used even to say that you're overwhelmed by something in a positive way. So you didn't think you were also going to get a Kim Kardashian meme, but here is one this morning, right? She's not intimidated. She's not scared. She's not worried. Something good has happened in her life. Lots of good things happen if you're Kim Kardashian, right? And so something good has happened. She's trying to drop hints that she's shook. She's even got like what? Like kind of a a wry smile on her face, right? So this is how many of you, I would imagine, are more used to this phrase being used. It's ironic or it's tongue-in-cheek or sort of something good has happened in your life and you're overwhelmed by it and you say, man, I'm shook, right? But let's go back. Let's go back to the original usage for a second. Where it wasn't ironic, it wasn't tongue-in-cheek, It wasn't about something good happening into your life, but it was about something difficult happening, something bad happening, something fearful coming over you, worry, anxiety, intimidation. Let's go back to that phrase, to the original meaning of how this was used. Now, I also want you to go back to and think over on the last 18 plus months that we've navigated together. Think of everything that has gone down, right? March 2020 begins COVID, at least here in the U.S. But it's not just that, right? Racial unrest that had been simmering below the surface in our country for a long time has bubbled over, right? There was a contentious national election in the last couple of years, difficult, challenging, We've got lots of arguments and debates and tension and fight about masks, about vaccines. And that's just what we've navigated together. You hear me? Like each and every one of you has lived your own personal life over the last year and a half. And knowing some of you, I know that you've been through your own trials and struggles, your own problems. In addition to the corporate challenges that we've had to navigate, we all have lived our own personal struggles. So listen, back to the original meaning of that phrase. If you haven't been shook more than a time or two, given all that we've walked through together and all that you've walked through on your own, if you can honestly say, no, I actually haven't been shook, that would really deeply surprise me. That's not my story over the past 18 months. 
I have battled worry. I have battled anxiety. I have had to seek some counseling. I've been shook more than once or twice. Because life right now, it still is and it has been hard, difficult, challenging. And I think this fact, the fact that I believe probably universally we've all been a bit shook by the last year and a half is part of why I was drawn to our verse of the year. Part of why the Lord, I think, led me to Psalm 16. Part of why he led me even more specifically to Psalm 16.8. And you've already heard it from Stephanie, but let's see it again. I keep my eyes always on the Lord, right? That's the idea. It's him that I look to. There's a lot you can look at in life, but it's him that I look to. And when I look at him, when I keep my eyes on him, when I keep my eyes always on the Lord, what happens? With him at my right hand, I will what? I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. Here's our big idea for this morning. It's the thing that I really, 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 really don't want you to miss. And this is really our big idea for the entire year. We are going to come back to this over and over and over again. Here it is. What shakes us doesn't shake him. What shakes us doesn't shake him. you got to hear me this morning. I think you need this just as much as I do. When we're shook, God's not. When we're uncertain, God's not. When we're unstable, God's not. When we're fearful, God's not. When we're anxious, God's not. When we're paralyzed by the unknown, when we're struggling with what has come before, when we are fearful because we don't know what's ahead, God's not. What shakes us does not shake him. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. As great as this idea is, as much as we need it, as wonderful as Psalm 16 verse 8 is, as great as it is, it actually gets better when we situate it in the context in which it was first written. So I'm going to read this whole chapter for us this morning. All of Psalm 16. It's not long, and I'll have it on the screen for you to follow along as I read it. Follow along with me and allow these words of Scripture, God's words spoken to us, to speak life to your soul. Allow them to grant refreshment to, to, refreshment to your heart. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones, and in them is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out drink offerings of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. No, Lord, you alone, you alone, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The bounty lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Here it is again. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. No, because you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Something I like to practice is that when we finish reading Scripture, you have to understand how different these words are from anything else that I or we are going to say today. 
This is quite literally the word of God that was just read among us. The God of the universe has humbled himself to allow us to read his words. Friends, it's different than what I say or what we say. And so I want to say, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond after that. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. That God would humble himself to allow us to read these words. Now the Psalms, there's 150 of them. These are fundamentally, these are poetry. Okay, you didn't know you were going to get poetry today, but here it is, poetry. It's the, it's the poetry book of the Bible, the song book of the Bible. And with poetry, you know, we've got great language and literature and English professors here. They'll tell you this. I'll tell it to you as well. It actually is a tenuous project to try to split up poetry into sections. But I'm going to try it anyway, so forgive me. Because I think you can split this psalm into a couple of different sections that will help us and aid us as we seek to understand what it is that God has for us. Here is how I would summarize the two main sections of Psalm 16, verses 1 through 5, the idea of choosing God alone. Verses 1 through 5, the idea of choosing God alone. And verses 7 through 11, the benefits of doing that. The benefits of choosing God alone. Verse 6 functions as a transition between the two sections. We're going to see that. And we're going to walk through these slowly with one another here to better understand what it is that King David, that's who wrote this psalm, king of Israel, one of the chosen anointed kings, right? A warrior in his own right also played an instrument, sang beautiful songs, and wrote poems. I love that. So King David wrote this psalm. What is it that he's trying to get across to us? Well, as we enter into the first section of this psalm, verses 1 through 5, one truth that we have to recognize to properly understand what it is that David is trying to say is this. Everyone is worshiping something. Everyone is worshiping something. Now, worship is a religious word. I understand that. And if you don't consider yourself to be a religious person, which I know we have folks in the room who don't consider themselves to be a religious person, right? Then you might disagree with this claim. But go with me for a moment, because in this statement, I'm actually trying to use the word worship in a broader, non-religious sense. And I'm using it to try to mean and communicate that all of us have something in our life that is most important to us. Do you agree with that, right? All of us have something in our life that is most important to us. You make a list of your life. What is at the top? What I'm saying and submitting to you is that is the thing that you're worshiping. Okay, so now there's this idea. It's a non-religious, right? And worship, to me, in this sense, means that you actually orient your entire life around whatever is at the top of the list. You orient your life around whatever is most important to you. So a few examples, right? If the most important thing in your life is your friends, then your life is oriented around being with them, hanging with them, spending time with them. Your life is oriented around that. If the most important thing in your life is your performance on the field or on the stage, then your life is oriented around practice, games, rehearsal, opening night. If it's the classroom, then your life is oriented around the paper that you have to finish up and that you have to get an A on. It's oriented around the exam that is right around the corner. If the most important thing in your life is your romantic relationship, well, you get the point, right? 
And you've seen this in people who clearly the person that they are in a romantic relationship with is at the top of their life. Those people, right? You know who I'm talking about. And if you don't, it's probably you. <laughs> right? But you've seen it, what happens when in someone's entire life is oriented around and revolves around the person that they are in a romantic relationship with. And it may still seem odd to refer to this reality as worship. But I actually think that this definition or approach to what worship is helps us when we return to what it means to worship God. I think this definition helps us when we try to understand what it means to worship God. Because friends, let me tell you, we have some wonky ideas about what it actually means to worship God. We have got some wonky ideas about that. You see, worship of God is not just going to church for a worship service. Worship of God is not just singing praise and worship songs. Worship of God is not just something that happens for one hour on Sunday mornings. Or, depending on the church you grew up in, it's not something that just happens on Sunday mornings for three or four or five hours. Can I get an amen in the house, Josh? Right? You've been to that church, you know. He's not stopping at an hour, right? Right? Okay, but that is worship, but it's a narrow, narrow definition of worship. Kick down those walls and go broader with me. Worship of God is so much more than that. Here's my shot at it. Here it is. Worship of God is about making him the most important part of your life and orienting everything around him. Worship of God is about making him the most important part of your life, and then it's about orienting everything around him. The Apostle Paul helps us here in Romans 12.1. This verse reads, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's incredible, undeserved mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, your bodies, all that you are, all that you have, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. How did he end it? This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. Everyone is worshiping something. Your only choice is what? Let's tie this idea back into Psalm 16. Now, we also see from a broader examination of Scripture, and we've touched on this already in my definition of what I think worship of God is. But when it comes to our worship, God demands it all. God demands it all. He doesn't want to just be part of our life. He wants to be the very center of it. He doesn't just want to be on the list. He demands to be at the top of the list. When it comes to our worship of him, God demands it all. And in Psalm 16, 1 through 5, the way that King David describes this reality is that God wants us to choose him. God wants us to choose him and choose him alone. Let's take another look at those verses and see now with this framework of broader worship and choosing God alone, let's find that together in these verses, okay? Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Nothing else is my Lord. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods, right? And that's a lowercase g, yep, 
Yep. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out drink offerings of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips because, Lord, you alone, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Right? Did you notice it with me? Whether it's in reference to his security, verse 1, his welfare, verse 2, his friendships and his relationships, verse 3, his worship, verse 4, or his very sustenance, what he eats, what he drinks, David makes it clear that he is choosing God alone. And he states it most clearly right there in verse 5, doesn't he? Lord, you alone, nothing else, no one else, you alone are my portion, you are my cup, you hold my lot. I place myself into your hands. I choose you, and I choose you alone. David is saying, in every realm of life, in every sphere of life, I choose you alone. I worship you alone. I orient my life around you alone because David knows when it comes to our worship, God demands it all. God demands it all. And David has made his choice to respond positively to that demand. Has he not? He's made his choice to respond positively to that demand. He has said, God, I will choose you, and I will choose you alone. So friends, here's the question for us. What will we choose? What will we choose? What will our response to this demand from God be? And maybe you think it's a little much to say that God demands something of you or demands something of us. He's God. He gets to demand whatever he wants. And so, yes, he demands it all. But frankly, and this is, I'll just put this right here. When I actually think about who I am and what I've done, I don't deserve it. So, yes, God demands it all from me. But, like, that's in spite of me. It's a gift that he demands it all from me. So what will our response be? How will our lives be oriented? What is the most important thing in your life? What are you worshiping? What will we choose? What will we choose? Because everyone is worshiping something. God invites you to worship him. But when you take that step, he then says, you got to give it all. He demands it all. What will we choose? As you're considering that question, I don't want us to forget that there's a second section to this psalm. We've covered verses 1 through 5, right? The breakdown there is that there's this idea of David choosing God alone. But in verses 7 through 11, there's this idea of the benefits of doing so. The benefits of choosing God alone. What comes with this choice that you're going to make, that I pray and hope that you're going to make? If you do it, what comes with it? And again, note verse 6. It's the transition. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You are given something by virtue of this choice of worshiping God and worshiping God alone. So what is it? Verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. No, you make known to me the path of life. 
You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Here in these verses, David describes multiple benefits. Verse 7, the Lord counsels us. He directs us. He guides us. Verse 8, he offers his steadying, unshakable presence in our lives. Verses 9 and 10, he promises that we will not see decay, that he will raise our bodies again, that we will be resurrected, and if we choose him alone, we will be given eternal life. And verse 11, he says there's this gift of him revealing to us the very path of life. And friends, all of these benefits come from the choice of worshiping him alone, of choosing him alone. Unbelievable benefits. Each and every single one of them would be worthy of our consideration. But I just want to zero in on one for right now, and we'll return to our verse of the year at the end. But let's zero in on Psalm 1611. And let's look closer at that benefit. And it starts this way. You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me the path of life. And I'm, it's like I'm on the edge of my seat. How does this end? The path of life? The path of life. That's a benefit of choosing God alone? I get to know the path of life? I mean, how often are you in these places? I'm here all the time. I need to know which way to go in my life. I need to know what the plan is. What's the plan? I need to know which decision I should make. I need to know which college to select. Y'all made the right choice, by the way. Thank you. Welcome. And, and you're in the Sterling College family. You can't ever leave. You signed in blood. It was in the fine print, right? You're here forever. But were, were you not in that place, like freshmen, like three months ago, one month ago, one week ago? Were you not in the place of going, I need to know what college to choose? If you've got the path, that leads me to understand what college I should choose, I'm in. Sign me up. Where do I sign? I will worship this God if I get revealed the path of life, right? This seems so, so good. I've been looking for the, I'm older than you, right? I've been looking for the path of life longer than you. I've been on that search. I see this and I'm like, oh my goodness. What comes next? Here it is. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And if we're not careful, the ending of this verse has the potential to be a wah-wah moment where we're disappointed by this. We got all hyped up. The path of life David reveals here, the path of life is not a plan, it's a person. The path of life is not a plan, it's a person. The path of life is God himself, the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, his personal name. He is the very path of life. He is the very path of life. And if we're going to appreciate this verse in what I think is just 
a beautiful fulfillment of what is promised in the path of life. If we're going to appreciate it, then you have to come to see, friends, that this is true. The very greatest gift that God can give you is not a plan, but is his presence. The very greatest gift that God can give you is not a plan, as good as that would be, and as many times as we need that. And yes, God does sometimes give us plans, but the greatest gift that he can give you and that he does offer you is not a plan. It is his very presence. And if you're scoffing right now, if you're in disbelief right now, if you disagree with this right now, then my guess, my assumption is that you have never experienced the unsurpassed, unsurpassed goodness, joy, and peace that comes from resting and remaining in the very presence of God. My guess is that you've never experienced what it says in Psalm 34, 8. You've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Here's why. First of all, it talks about eating stuff, and I like to eat stuff. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's obvious. You can laugh. It's okay. <laughs> Think about the last time you ate something that was undeniably delicious. Whatever it is, just think about that. Get it in your head. Whatever was like so good. Listen, like I love Chartwells, but it probably wasn't in the calf. It's cool. We can laugh at that too. All right. Okay, so think about, get, stay with me for a moment, but genuinely think about the last time that you ate something that like blew your mind. It was that delicious. What would have happened if someone came to you and said, hey, that thing that you just ate, it actually wasn't good. You would have looked at them like, well, you have no idea. You are wrong. Because experientially, you know the truth of how good that thing was that you just tasted. So when I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you can't take that from me. You can't take that from me. Not that you're trying, but you can't. Listen, but we all have to walk that journey. Have you tasted for yourself and seen that the Lord is good? If you have, no one can take that from you. No one can take that from you. But the thing is, right, how, how long ago was that delicious thing that you ate? If it was a while ago, what starts to happen to your good memories and your good feels of how good it tasted? It starts to fade a little bit, right? You have to keep eating and keep tasting that the Lord is good. This is why David says, you alone are what? My portion. He's talking about food. It's a metaphor, but he's talking about food. You're my portion. You are my cup. You are what I eat and what I drink. You are what I sustain myself with. And as I taste and see that you are good, nobody can take that from me. And so I invite you to this. I invite you to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I invite you, as the verse says, to be the blessed one who takes refuge in him. We had hail worship on Sunday night, right? We, yes, that was awesome. Like Trinity finished praying and like, whoosh, it was nuts. But like we were all okay, I think, I hope. And the instruments were all okay, right? We needed in that moment to what? Take refuge from the storm. 
You don't want to be outside in baseball-sized hail. You don't want to be driving through Ellsworth. We had a student, right, Afton driving through Ellsworth with a baseball-sized hail, right? You need to take refuge. Be the blessed one that takes refuge of God from the hailstorms of this life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Nothing is better than resting in and being renewed by the life-giving, the life-giving, joy-abundant, peace-bringing presence of God. Nothing is better than that. Nothing's better than that. Truly, the greatest gift that God can give us is not a plan, but his presence. The greatest gift that God can give us is not a plan, but it is his presence. Now, as we close this morning, I want to return briefly to our verse of the year because it actually gives us such a beautiful picture of God's presence with us. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. In this verse, God's presence is with us, is it not? He is close to us, is he not? I mean, you can't very well be close to someone that's out of your eyesight. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. If, you're in, if they're in your eyesight, they're close to you. And more than that, more than the eyesight, what does David say? He actually said, God is what? He's by our right hand. He is by our right hand. He's at our right hand in this verse. That's how close he is to you. He's attached. He's right here. Pastor and author Tim Keller, he writes this about what it means for God to be at our right hand. To be at someone's right hand is to be their advocate in court it's to be their support in battle, or it is to be their companion for the journey. And here's what I want you to see. Don't miss this. In Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he sent because what? He so loved the world that we read about in John 3.16. In Jesus Christ, friends, we have all of this. Jesus is our advocate, forgiving our debt of sin before the Father. Jesus is our support in battle, waging war alongside us against the challenging circumstances of our lives. Jesus is our companion for the journey, walking alongside us as you would an old trusted friend. Jesus Christ is with us. He is at our right hand. And if this is true, and I believe so deeply that it is, then how can we be shaken? How can we be shaken? And I am not trying at all to minimize the difficult circumstances of your life, the challenges that you're navigating that have you shook right now. I'm not taken away from that. I'm not. I know that there are hard things that we're navigating. I'm not making light of any of that. Remember, I have been shook myself, but don't forget our big idea. What shakes us doesn't shake him. What shakes us doesn't shake him. And he is at our right hand. He's with us every step of the way. This reminds me of a verse from one of my all-time favorite hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. This verse here, pardon for sin and a peace that endures. His own dear presence, his own dear presence, your own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine, with 10,000 beside. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are ahead of us, that you are behind us, 
that you go before us, that you are at our right hand. We are so, so, so grateful, Father, that you are with us and that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus is our, he's, he is our uh, fighter with us in battle and he is our companion for the journey. We love you only because you first loved us. As we worship you now in song, Lord, in the narrow sense, may it orient our lives to worship you in the broader sense. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.